Our scripture reading today is from the Gospel of John, chapter 13, verses 1 through 20. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it in the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and, taking a towel, tied it around his waist. He poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, The one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him, and that was why he said, Not all of you are clean. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your teacher, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. I am not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen. But the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I am telling you this now, before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me. And whoever receives me, the one who sent me. The word of the Lord. We read in the Gospels that nearly everything Jesus does revolves around food and drink. He's almost always going to a meal or coming from a meal or enjoying fellowship over a long meal that goes well into the evening. In fact, he was so focused on meals that he was even accused by the Pharisees of being a drunkard and a glutton. You might remember that his first miracle was to turn water into wine at a wedding party. He meets Zacchaeus and he says, come down from the tree because I'm coming to your house today. And they share a meal together. He takes delight in miraculously feeding a crowd of several thousand people on more than one occasion. But why in the three short years of ministry that he had on earth, of all the things he could have spent his time doing, why is it so important for him to share a meal 
Of course, on a surface level, we all enjoy a good meal with family or friends. But for Jesus, there was this incredible purpose, this theological significance behind the sharing of a meal. For a Mediterranean culture at the time of Christ, much like today, to share a meal with someone was a sign of intimacy done only with the closest of friends and family members. If people were at odds with each other, one way they could reconcile and bury the hatchet would be to share a meal together. The real reason the Pharisees resented Jesus and called him a glutton and a drunkard was not because he ate too much, but it was because of the kind of people with whom he would share a meal. See, Jews would never share a meal with a Gentile as they were considered unclean. Yet Jesus ate and enjoyed fellowship with tax collectors and sinners and prostitutes. For Jesus to share a meal with Zacchaeus, a greedy tax collector, it was a sign of grace. It was a way of bringing a new person into fellowship and into his kingdom over a meal. So here in John 13, we come to Jesus' final meal with his disciples. This is his last opportunity to teach them and to give his final words before he goes to the cross. After three years of life and ministry together with them, he sums it all up in this, what we call, upper room discourse. And true to form, Jesus decides to share a meal with them, the Passover feast, which had been established way back when God freed the Israelites from slavery in Egypt. And it was held every year at the same time, and it was to be held that Thursday night before he was crucified. So take a look now at verse 1. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it in the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. Jesus knew that he had done his job, he had loved his disciples well, he would love them to the very end. And it was out of this complete love and patience and care for them, wanting to make sure that they understood what it meant to experience his love, that he interrupts the meal. It says, during supper, he rose from supper, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, that he had come from God, that he was going back to God, meaning Jesus understood how high his position was, that he had all authority. The Father had given all things into his hands. This means that all of creation he was to reign over as king. There was no one above him. He understood, even if the disciples didn't quite get it yet, that he was the king of kings, the most powerful person to ever live. He was God himself. This is magisterial language describing a man who had all the power in the universe and who could move a mountain at the snap of his fingers, who could heal the lame and the sick with a word. Not only that, but he had come from the Father in heaven. He was going back to reign with his Father in heaven. Out of his incredible love for his disciples, look at what he does next. He rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments. Taking a towel, he tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. So he's removed his outer garments, which is a bit like being in your pajamas or your underwear, only something you would do in front of someone you're very comfortable with, a humbling thing to do. He takes a towel, he wraps it around his waist, 
pours water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet. Now, one thing we know is that the disciples did a lot of walking on dirty, dusty roads that were also traversed by cattle and horses who left manure. It was also a time when there was no sewage system like what we have today. So the disciples' feet would have been absolutely filthy. Maybe if you've had teenage boys living in your home, you can relate. And it was customary that before any meal, people would wash their feet for obvious reasons. But the person who was required to wash feet was not only a servant, but this would have been the lowest of the servants. This was a job for the lowest of the low. It was a humiliating experience. I've heard people who have experienced homelessness talk about how the most painful part of being homeless for, for many is the psychological damage of having to stand on the side of the road, look people in the eye as car after car passes by and they experience a hundred times a day the shame of having to ask, to ask for money, to be the foot washing servant was about much more than simply the task of washing dirty feet. It was a humiliating symbol of one's status as the lowest of servants. And here's what John wants you to see. That Jesus' entire mission and purpose in coming into the world is actually summed up in this act of washing his disciples' feet. He humbled himself to become the lowest of the low. As as Philippians says, he didn't consider equality with God a thing to be grasped or to hold on to, but he made himself nothing. This washing of feet is a precursor to when he will finally pour himself out by dying on the cross. This is what Jesus does for his loved ones. This washing of feet is not a a one-off or a little teaching point along the way but it perfectly and fully sums up his ministry and his way of life. The one who had come from the Father was going back to the Father who had all authority and power. The King of Kings becomes the lowest of servants. And this is the way of the gospel, what some have called the way of downward mobility in contrast to the way of this world. Just before this passage, you might, this passage, you might remember the disciples were arguing about who would be the greatest in the kingdom. They had their minds set on a kind of spiritual upward mobility. And Jesus uses this perfect object lesson to show them the truth. Look again at verse 6. He came to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, what I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. You know, I love Peter because he is that kid in the class who asks the obvious question that everybody else wants to ask, but they're too afraid to speak up for fear of embarrassment. Peter goes for it every time. There is no verbal filter on Peter. So Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean. But not every one of you, for he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, not all of you are clean. Peter doesn't understand the nature of the gospel yet. He doesn't understand how Jesus' kingdom works. The concept of downward mobility hasn't registered with Peter. 
And this feels awkward and uncomfortable for him because it goes against the hierarchy that exists in his mind. That someone in a position of power and authority must not stoop to the level of a person who is lower or of less importance. And we all tend to think this way, don't we? Whether you are a middle schooler with a very clear understanding of who's cool, who's popular, and who's not, and people are ranked based on where they fit into this hierarchy, or maybe you work in a company with important higher-ups and seemingly less important entry-level staff, Jesus doesn't see the world through this lens. In fact, to him, it is the lowly and the humble who will one day be lifted up, and it's the proud and the self-important who will be brought low. Peter doesn't yet understand how Jesus' kingdom works because he hasn't fully understood how Jesus will wash him clean. It's not until you and I understand and are washed clean by Jesus that we will understand how his kingdom works, and how to be his followers, and what it means to be significant in his kingdom. Jesus is preaching the good news of the gospel when he says in verse 10, The one who has bathed does not need to be washed again, except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean if you have trusted Jesus as your Savior and confessed your sins and surrendered your life to him. You need to hear these words every day. You are completely clean. Most of us forget the gospel by thinking that due to our ongoing sin and failures, we're somehow partially clean or that we need to clean ourselves up to be with Jesus. But he delights in sharing meals with sinners. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world by washing us clean through his blood shed for us on the cross. That is the most the single most important word of truth you will ever hear. And that is what will change Peter's life and his heart and help him begin to see and to live into the kingdom of Jesus. Now let me take a moment. It may sound strange or theologically confusing to us when uh, Jesus says, on the one hand, you've been bathed once, for, once and for all. You've been washed completely clean. Yet you need to continue washing your feet if we've been made completely clean, why is it that we still need to wash? What Jesus is showing the disciples is the difference between salvation, which is a gift. It's made possible only through his death and resurrection as he takes our place and serves as our substitute. The difference between that and what we call sanctification. Sanctification is this daily washing of our feet and that we must now confess our sins to him daily. More than daily, whenever our sin rears its ugly head and makes itself apparent to us, we are to stop and to confess. This, what, this is what it means to walk the lifelong journey of following Jesus and growing closer to him. We run from our sin, confessing our sins daily, asking Jesus to sanctify us and to wash us. And this is even something we can do for each other as we confess our sins to others and pray together and find healing. This daily washing is not what saves us, but it's a new life of purification which we have been saved into. Now look at verse 12. In verse 12, Jesus goes on to explain what he has done for them. Look at what he says. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I've done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If then your Lord and teacher have washed your feet, you also are to wash one another's feet. For I've given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. 
Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you have the word chief or senior or president somewhere in your job title, it it would be good to listen carefully. The servant is not greater than the master, and a messenger is not greater than the one who sent him. Meaning no matter how powerful or important we deem ourselves to be or the world considers us to be, if we are followers of Jesus, we will be the kind of people who wash one another's feet in humility, who take that position of the lowest servant, who get their hands dirty serving one another. What others might see as time-wasting interruptions, we will see as an opportunity to be the presence of Christ for another person. Let me just take a few moments to make this very practical because um, modern people are not typically washing each other's feet. While some Christians actually still engage in the practice of washing feet, what I think Jesus wants to give us is a, a new and radical way of doing life in the context of community. This is why he instructs them to do this for one another. For a modern person to wash feet, it might mean a dad who is willing to get down on his hands and knees and scrub the toilet for his wife. It might be a teacher who goes out of his way to include and care for the most difficult student in class. It might be the CEO who goes out of her way to take the interns out to lunch and to ask them questions about their personal lives. To wash one another's feet might be a congregation like Stony Point deciding to welcome and support and give resources to the Spanish speakers in our community. Many of us don't wash each other's feet well because we feel like we don't have enough time. Our lives are too busy. Our time is too valuable. Um, Work seems too stressful. School's too much. And we want to be the kind of people who serve, but maybe we're just not good at it yet. How do we become this kind of person? First, we must rehearse this good news of the gospel that we were unclean and separated from God and Jesus took our sin upon himself and washed us, not partially, but completely clean in every way. And then we must surrender our lives to Jesus, who is our teacher and our master and our Lord, and to ask him for opportunities to wash each other's feet. And finally, we must, in real life, in daily community, we must be with fellow believers One of the reasons that Jesus loved to share a meal with his disciples was because it created this fellowship. It brought them into community and allowed them to do life together. And notice, Jesus doesn't exclude Judas in the washing of feet. Even though he knew Judas will in a few hours betray him for a few silver coins, Jesus, the King of Kings, humbles himself, washes the feet even of his enemy. And we must do the same. You know, many of us, myself included, we tend to um, serve with strings attached. If I serve someone and they don't show appreciation or they don't return the favor, I choose to serve someone else, someone more deserving. But the attitude of a servant is to humble ourselves and to serve even the most difficult. In the book, Everyday Church, Gospel Communities on Mission by Tim Chester and and Steve Timmis, which I highly recommend to you, especially if you are leading a community group or in some position of gospel leadership, they make the very convincing argument that for the majority of people in America who are unchurched, the problem is not that they are for or against the church. 
The problem in a post-Christian and post-Christendom society is that the church for most has become irrelevant. It's a bit like when I drive by our local library. I love to read books, but I get all my books online and I rarely ever actually step foot in a library building. And so I have little need for it. And for the most part, it seems irrelevant to my busy day-to-day life. This book argues that the same is true for the local church in the eyes of many of our neighbors. It's not that they're against it, but it's that it's become totally irrelevant. And the problem is that we we put so much of our time and our resources into creating attractional events that may be great for our church and our churchgoers, but irrelevant to our neighbors when Jesus is calling us to be attractional communities who are doing everyday life together who are washing each other's feet and loving our neighbors and who are motivated not by upward mobility or status or the things of this world, but who are motivated by love for Jesus, who has washed them completely clean and who are on a journey of sanctification, of daily confessing our sins and of doing the humble tasks of the lowest of servants. This is what will make us relevant to our neighbors. And I'm not saying that we shouldn't gather for corporate worship or have events at church, but we must not put all of our energy and effort into putting on these incredible attractional events at the cost of becoming attractional communities in our neighborhoods, our places of work, and our schools. This is in part why Jesus was so concerned that we love each other well that we share meals together, that we enjoy each other's company and fellowship. It's not only for our own joy, but it's that we might be the presence of Jesus in the world. Look at what he says in verse 20. Truly, truly. Whenever he says truly, truly, he means what I'm about to say is incredibly important. I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. This is an incredible thing to know that Jesus, the King of kings, the one into whose hands all things have been given, the one who has all authority, has appointed us, his followers, to be his representatives to the world. And whoever receives us, meaning whoever receives our message, which is the good news of the gospel, receives Jesus himself. And whoever receives Jesus receives the one who sent Jesus into the world to die for the lost, namely our heavenly Father. Friends, this is a high calling that we might go low, that we might be a community of people, that our community groups might be gospel communities who express our love by doing the difficult tasks, the menial, the humbling tasks, and doing them for each other. What allows us to become the kind of people who serve with humility, who take that low position, who are not worried about power and status for personal gain, is to know that we are children of the Most High God. Look again back at verse 3 to see how Jesus understands his own identity and how it shapes our identity. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, Jesus knew that he had all power that he was coming from the Father and going back to the Father. You know, I've noticed in children that when children have the security of knowing that their mom and dad love them, um, even when they make mistakes, when they know that their parents are proud of them, regardless of what they accomplish in life, they tend to go out into the world or into social situations with a higher level of confidence because they know where they've come from and and they know that their parents have, have shaped their identity and their own view of themselves. 
How much greater is it that we have a heavenly father who loves us, and that we serve a king who has all authority? That's why he says in Matthew 28 in the Great Commission, as Jesus is sending out his disciples into the world, he gives them this preface, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, therefore go. The biggest reason we become so busy with work or school or sports, I think, has less to do with workload or how busy we actually are, and it has everything to do with our identity. We think that we need to prove ourselves in the world, so we try to build ourselves up and exalt ourselves, because we don't trust that we have a Heavenly Father who controls all things and will provide exactly what we need, including our career path, our finances, our physical health. But as we grow in the gospel and in our understanding of grace, that Christ has made us clean, completely clean, we become children who have the confidence to humble ourselves, to go low, to take the position of the lowest servant. And in so doing, we become inviting, hospitable gospel communities. This summer, I led our first group of folks through community group leader training, And as we met together and actually shared fellowship and enjoyed having our own small gospel community for a few weeks, we all got to talk about what would it look like to launch out new groups that are led by leaders who believe the gospel and are willing to take the time out of their own busy lives to invite strangers into their homes and backyards and to wash dirty feet. What an incredibly high calling. So we have seven new groups that are starting in places like the West End, Westchester, Charter Woods, Polo Parkway, Bonaire, Woodmont. I'm really excited about these two Spanish-speaking communities, um, the communities that Frank Matthews and Ray Diaz have helped us launch. Each one of these groups have made a commitment to form a small nucleus of like-minded Stony Point believers, but not to fill it up quickly with our own folks. They've made a commitment to make space for our neighbors, to be gospel communities that are missional, who wash each other's feet and love each other well, but also go into the world with the authority and the humility of Christ, welcoming anyone who will receive them. The reality of our post-Christian culture is that for many, the church has become irrelevant But what if when a new family moves into the neighborhood, we decide as a community group to buy them some Target gift cards and put together a few toys in a gift basket, maybe some coloring books and some bubbles for their little kids, and to offer that to the new family. We don't even have to say it's from Stony Point Reformed Presbyterian Church, which is a part of the PCA. Not because we're ashamed of the church or of the gospel, but maybe for many this The church is irrelevant or maybe even harmful in their view. But who would refuse the love of a community that would offer a gift basket like that? A group of people who gather regularly around the scriptures, who are motivated by the love of Christ to do life together and to welcome our neighbors. John 13, 35 says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. This is God's plan for reaching the world, that as we share meals together, as we wash each other's feet, as we love each other in the same way that Jesus loved us, all people will know that he is our king. Let me pray.
Jesus, we thank you that you interrupted that Lord's Supper, that you stopped what you were doing, that you didn't just tell the disciples they need to love each other, but you actually removed your outer garments, you took out that basin of water, and you began washing the disciples' feet, and you did it out of love, and it was a way of life for you that led to the cross. Jesus, we thank you that in the cross you have washed us completely clean. And Lord, we pray that we would now live into that, that we would um, have our feet washed daily as we confess our sins to you, as we grow in sanctification and trust of you. And Lord, that we would be a light to the lost in our communities as they are welcomed into the kingdom of Christ. In your name I pray, amen.